the Russian invasion of Ukraine enters its second week. And as the war in Ukraine rages, we discuss the short and long-term implications of the conflict with two regional experts, both of whom are professors at Emory and Henry College. Dr. Sarah Fisher, a professor of political science whose research has focused on foreign policy and international conflicts, and Dr. Matthew Shannon, a professor of history who has conducted research in the areas of diplomacy and human rights. We are coming together online for this discussion. Sarah and Matt, it is so nice to see you, and thank you for being here today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. It's great to be here. I want to cover basically the short-term and the long-term implications of this invasion and have the discussions around those two points. So I hope we can begin first by getting your thoughts about the short-term implications and talk about, I guess we'll start with Sarah, as to why do you think now was the time that Russia decided to make this move? Well, some of this is up in the air, right? People aren't quite sure exactly what's happening in Putin's mind. Um, as to why right now, I know some folks have been reporting that he had, he's been talking about this for you know a while now um, and that he's had to invade sooner um, because the tanks weren't going to get through the mud. Um, so I know I've seen reports that he had to invade closer to winter than to spring um, because of logistics. And that's really something that you've seen Russia been struggling with is logistics um, for this invasion. Um, so as to the why now, maybe that's you know a simpler answer. Um, but also Putin has had long, for a long time, since at least 2014, but even prior to that, um, right, has had designs on wanting to um, get Ukraine closer into Russia's orbit. Um, he's not a fan of the current president. Um, and so, because the current president has been leaning more towards the West. Um, and so maybe there's a, you know, answer of like, why not now for Putin? Mm -hmm. Well, given that, Matt, do you think that there was anything that the West could have done to deter this invasion? Um, well, just um, to build on um, what um, Dr. Fisher is saying about the timing, um, it's, I'll just kind of add in two really quick points that are maybe just contextual, but there certainly is, you know, kind of a change in U.S. administration and, you know, the major buildups when you kind of see the maps and the sequencing, you know, kind of take us back to last spring and, you know, kind of really escalating in more recent months. But um, there's, uh, after what happened in Afghanistan, you know, maybe a greater uh, desire or uh, willingness to kind of test the Biden administration, you know, kind of uh, in an area that might be kind of outside of, you know, kind of what the U.S. will consider kind of, you know, vital to its interests at this point. Also, like the high profile nature of it, like all the Russian invasions recently have been, you know, kind of high prof profile events. So the annexation of Crimea happened around an Olympics. <laughs> uh, the air campaign in Syria and fall 15 happened when the U.N. was meeting in New York. And now we're kind of seeing uh, it unfold again um, as we were watching the Olympics on the one hand and thinking about what Putin would do with Ukraine on the other. As far as like deterrence, it's an interesting question. I mean, kind of the U.S. kind of deterrent capability in Europe historically comes through NATO. And of course, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So um, kind of, you know, outside kind of the traditional kind of deterrence that we have seen kind of in 
Europe, you know, I don't know kind of uh, what could have been done. Of course, there's talk of maybe you know, preemptive sanctions or other forms of pressure or maybe forms of diplomacy that could have been under uh, taken, but it doesn't really seem like that would have mattered a whole lot really uh, after what we see kind of Putin doing it. I don't know that the diplomatic track or these mild forms of pressure would have done a whole lot to deter the aggression. You agree with that, Sarah? It does seem like, especially with Matt talking about how he sort of focuses on high profile opportunities, that this is anything that could have been deterred and that it is anything but a Putin initiative. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it could have been deterred much more. I mean, the United States was saying to, you know, the world, to other intelligence agencies, this is our information on Putin. We really think he's going to do this. Um, and so I don't know what you can do much more than that, unless you really wanted to do what Matt was saying, some sort of like preemptive kind of sanction. But I just don't imagine anyone would have done it, would have gotten on board with that. Because I, I, I know I stood in front of my class, my intro to international relations class and said, no, Putin's not going to invade. And then he did, right? So um, I, I do think that it took a lot of folks by surprise. And I'm wondering why it may have been then that we were surprised. I mean, why is it that we haven't figured out, Matt, by now, just what Putin is like and what his ambitions are? I don't, I don't know that it would have been in like Eastern Europe if it, if it would have been so surprising if um, to people in the Baltic states or Poland or you know people who have experienced annexation and Red Army occupation and things like that in the past. But and there's you know good historical work on this like memory of the end of the Cold War and um, uh, a lot of people kind of just have kind of mismemories about kind of what happened and you know kind of what it all uh, meant. So this notion that the Soviet Union collapses and you know kind of uh, democracy will kind of triumph everywhere from Berlin to Baghdad uh, or that uh, kind of European integration is an inevitable, you know, kind of phenomenon that will continue to move forward across all of Europe, like it happened in Western Europe during the Cold War, that this is kind of what people thought. They started to talk about the end of history and, you know, kind of a new type of kind of inter way of interacting with uh, neighbors in, in Europe and kind of what we're seeing right now that those kind of post-Cold War mentalities have been, you know, shattered, at least kind of in the context of the immediate war. Uh, in, in, in the Ukraine. So I think a lot of it, a lot of the surprise has to do with kind of, you know, a quarter century uh, or more even of kind of narratives that in Western Europe and in the United States, we've kind of told ourselves about how the last big conflict with Russia ended. Mm -hmm. I, I also think that some of it has to do with a brazen violation of the norm of sovereignty. Like I would argue that sovereignty, like as like borders, right? That like we, we think that borders exist we can generally draw borders on a map um, and that that norm I think has been wildly violated in this particular moment. And that's not to say that that norm hasn't been violated since the end of the cold war, right? It has, um, right? I think the Gulf war is a good example of Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait. I think you could talk about Iraq and Afghanistan also as, you know, potentially being seen as violations of sovereignty as well. But like, this is a brazen sort of, violation of sovereignty. So I would argue that the norm also matters here too. I want to sort of flip it then in terms of Putin's surprises, because if it has been his intention all along to invade Ukraine and to be very expansionistic, 
Why was he perhaps not better prepared when going into Ukraine? Did he miscalculate in understanding what kind of resistance you get? And why did he have that miscalculation? Matt, can you answer that? Um, I, I could at least provide some ideas. I don't know if there'll be answers, but I mean, there, there have been a lot of reports about kind of Putin being pretty insulated and isolated, you know, kind of in the decision-making product process. We I don't get the impression that this is a multiple advocacy form of you know, decision-making in Moscow. I mean, kind of publicly humiliating foreign intelligence chiefs. And, you know, so there's only so much that can be said to him, uh, to Putin kind of at this stage. And it's not entirely new, but it seems to have gotten worse over the last few months. Um, the other point I think has to do, it's a kind of a classic, classic overestimation uh, story. And Saddam Hussein thought he would be greeted as a liberator when he invaded Iran because of southwestern Iran having a large kind of Arab speaking, you know, kind of Sunni a Muslim population that might want to be liberated from the new Islamic Republic. It didn't work out that way for him. And of course, when the U.S. goes into Iraq in the early 21st century, you know, there was this idea of being greeted as liberators that didn't turn out to be the case. So there's kind of often kind of just a fundamental misinterpretation about kind of what's happening, you know, in a very specific and complicated locality uh, and kind of what kind of the conversation is in um, you know, Washington or Moscow, right? It gets flattened a bit. So I would just, uh, the intelligence point and then this misperception of being a liberator. What people are trying to figure out now is, is like, was it misperception on Putin's part? Does he have another plan to like really sort of use massive force to overwhelm Ukraine? I think I'm sort of in the misperce misperception camp as well, that it just seems like this wasn't planned out very well, right? That again, that folks would be greeted as liberators. And I think, especially if you have this kind of groupthink kind of mentality that you were describing, right? If you're a leader who doesn't get good intelligence reports because people are afraid to give them to you, right? Like that might be happening in Moscow. We don't really know, um, but I think that there's a good, you know, I think that's a great guess for like why this is happening at this moment. Well, sir, I want to ask you one thing that may have surprised everybody from Putin to Biden to the European leaders, and that is the, the very seemingly solid response from the West and internationally. Is that something that surprised you? And how did that come to, to be in your mind? I, I was a little surprised by how united people have been generally against this invasion. And I really, I, I just keep thinking it goes back to sovereignty, right? This is a blatant violation of international norms. Um, also, folks have pointed to, so Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Um, and folks have pointed to this as a moment where it really ramped up Ukrainian nationalism in a way that it hadn't existed before. And so folks have argued that like, that's one of the reasons why Ukraine is such a, like people weren't even expecting Ukrainians really necessarily to, you know, be uniting quite in the way that they have. Matt, is there some lesson from history that helps make sense of this that sort of would have pointed to the fact that there would be this kind of unified response? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. And um, historically, it, it is interesting to think about. I mean, the U.S. hasn't traditionally had a lot of capabilities in Eastern Europe, but there has been a lot of sympathy for 
you know, pro-democracy or, you know, reform movements or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, um, I mean, we could even go back into the mid 19th century and think about, you know, kind of proto-European nationalists making the case to Americans about, you know, kind of the uh, overbearing power of the Russian Empire and the need for national self-determination. But it, within the context of the Cold War, we could think about Imranaj in 1956 in Hungary, a very public face of a reform movement behind the Iron Curtain, right? Uh, and of course, the U.S. doesn't meaningfully support that movement. It's crushed by the Soviet Union. In 1968, you know, the Prague Spring uh, was a major event. There were, you know, American activists traveling uh, to Prague, uh, Alexander Dubček, uh, you know, the, is on the cover of Time magazine. He's kind of the you know, communist reformer in Czechoslovakia in 1968. You know, and Americans are generally like greeting this kind of thing favorably, uh, you know, both in 1956 in Hungary, in 1968 uh, in Czechoslovakia. And both of those situations don't end well. So I don't want to necessarily make those the historical kind of reference points to what's uh, happening now. And so there is a history of kind of American public opinion being sympathetic with anti-Russian, anti-Soviet uh, kind of Europeans. But there's also a history of fairly kind of, at least until the end of the Cold War, actually limited you know, action on the U.S. behalf to be able to meaningfully support those sorts of movements. So this could be uh, different than today in a lot of respects. It's time to go for a break, um, but when we come back, I want to talk then about the long-term implications for this invasion and, and what it means to uh, the geopolitical makeup of the world if what we're seeing now especially is continued in terms of resistance and support. You are listening to Together to Get There, the show dedicated to economic and community development in Southwest Virginia. I am your host, Dirk Moore, and today I am talking with two Emory & Henry professors. Sarah Fisher is a professor of political science at Emory & Henry College, and Matt Shannon is a professor of history at Emory & Henry College. You are also listening to WBHC 90.7, the voice of Southwest Virginia. Support for WEHC comes from the Lincoln Theater, presenting diverse artistic experiences, increasing awareness of local heritage and culture, and preserving the theater for future generations to enjoy. The Lincoln Theater is a home for music and culture in the heart of downtown Marion, 117 East Main Street, Marion, Virginia. Tickets and information at 276-783-6092 or online at thelincoln.org. Welcome back to Together to Get There. Today, I am joined by Sarah Fisher. She is a professor of political science at Emory Henry College and Matt Shannon. He is a professor of history. We are talking about Ukraine and we have been talking about the short-term implications of the Russian invasion of that country, what it has meant to the Western Alliance, what it has meant to the politics on the ground there. Now I want to shift to talking about the long-term implications of this invasion. And I'll start with you, Matt, to ask you, what is the likely scenario in, in Ukraine over the next few years? Will they be able to retain a resistance? If they do, what happens to this country economically, politically, or is it just too hard to say at this point? 
Uh, it's hard to say. I'll, I'll give some like scenarios. I think this is a really interesting question. And then uh, maybe there will be some kind of more contemporary uh, analysis afterward. But, you know, worst case scenario, it seems to me would be a kind of, um, you know, annexation situation of the whole country, like the Baltics in 1939, 1940. And it's worth thinking that the all the three signatories of the agreement that finally dissolved the Soviet Union in 1991 are kind of involved in this, Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia, right? So it's the notion that kind of there's something like that. That's probably the worst case scenario. You know, a really bad scenario would be like a, uh, you know, protracted war and occupation and uh, Ukrainian resistance that uh, might look like, you know, kind of Afghanistan in the 1980s, and it would just be bloody for all parties and, you know, kind of a, a horrendous situation that's undesirable. You know, I kind of mentioned Prague Spring, it's, you know, would be the case for a kind of quick military maneuver that, you know, within a few months results in a changed government. So in 1968, we have the reformist who replaced an old Stalinist replaced by a neo-Stalinist mm -hmm. rules until the end of the Cold War. So, I mean, a type of quick occupation and political change that Russia wants would be another bad scenario, but not as military driven than the first two. Uh, and then maybe the best you could hope for is, you know, kind of at the end of the Cold War when the Soviets briefly sent troops into the Baltic region in early 1991, but then there was a withdrawal. And of course, those states gained their independence because of a range of kind of diplomacy and uh, Western pressure and, 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 and everything. So kind of some some reason that is out there that would give Putin a reason to withdraw and save face and, you know, minimize the bloodshed and probably not get what he, he wanted, which of course a lot of analysts are saying is highly unlikely right now, but that's probably the best case. So from really, really bad to, you know, um, best case scenario, that would potentially be a, a scale, historical scale to consider. Matt has given well-articulated scenarios, three of them, Sarah. Do any of those appeal to you? Or are there other scenarios that you think are possible? And do you have one that you think is most likely? I mean, I, I think that that scale is, a, you know, it's all of them are bad, right? Um, it's just what degree of bad do you want to sort of consider in this, in this situation, especially for the Ukrainian people, right? I mean, I just don't imagine that Ukraine can sustain this long term unless you really get, you know, massive support from the year. And this is happening, right? The European Union is giving lots of money, right? Which has never happened before. I mean, you've got neighbors sending in money and, um, and weapons. Um, and so like this protracted scenario, like I, I feel like that's, maybe where we're heading is that, you know, if money keeps pouring in to civil conflict, or well, this is an internationalized conflict, but if money keeps pouring in, right, people keep fighting. Um, and so you kind of got to imagine that that's just going to keep being really bloody um, in this, in this moment. Now, I think there's a really unlikely scenario that just to throw out there is that, you know, there's reports that and, you know, this is all from like Twitter, TikTok, et cetera, right? But there's reports of like Russian soldiers deliberately like puncturing holes in their gas tanks of their tanks, right? To like not to like drag their feet going into Ukraine. But it's just difficult to imagine that there's going to be a widespread, you know, 
desertion or mutiny or something like that, or conversely thinking within Russia, right? There's been people being arrested for protesting against this, which you got to imagine in an authoritarian state, you are putting your life on the line by getting out there in the street, um, protesting against Putin at this point. And so, but I just can't imagine that there's really going to be a sort of end of the Cold War kind of moment where you get a change in regime for for Russia or, you know, a moment where you get, you know, Putin pulling out of Ukraine and hanging his head. I just don't imagine that that's going to happen. Matt, is there a scenario where it's not Putin who pulls the troops out of Ukraine? I mean, he seems to be making everybody angry, including probably his oligarchs and maybe even his military leaders who probably see what's happening with soldiers who are not actively engaged in this battle and the protesters, how many of them can be arrested before the public is just in revolt. So I'm wondering if what Sarah is saying is not necessarily out of the realm of possibility or has Putin just got too much of a hold on the levers of power to make that impossible? That's a really good point. And I'm glad that you know scenario was raised because often you know, the ones that seem most unlikely or difficult to imagine are kind of those historical moments. You know, those are the ones that, you know, kind of resonate. And uh, so the idea of the military itself, you know, kind of not going along with uh, the war to an extent that it would really kind of slow it down or damage its aims. I, I, I don't know that it would happen on that larger scale. It would have to be really widespread kind of mutiny, right? Um, the, the question of, you know, how strong is Russian civil society, you know, uh, where are the liberals and how safe do they feel to, you know, kind of speak out because just in the last few months, you know, various groups have had their offices shut down, you know, the press isn't free, we see how the protesters are being uh, handled um, right now, right. Um, the question of internally within kind of the defense establishment, or even potentially more likely within kind of the small circle of oligarchs who are getting their yachts seized and might get upset that a couple of their billions are unavailable to them in Swiss banks. It's an interesting case, you know, so I'm thinking of, you know, the failed coup by the military in 1991 against Gorbachev, but it really you know, it's like it, it spelled the end of the Soviet Union, even though kind of the military didn't exactly achieve their goals. They, I think they called themselves the emergency committee or something like that. So, you know, that might be, you know, without any really intelligence about kind of what's happening, you know, kind of in the way that kind of a student of contemporary Russia might or someone who has intelligence reports, uh, things that they might be aware of, you know, that might be, you know, the most likely kind of Russian domestic scenario that could lead to some type of change, but I still don't know really how likely it is. Given that there's a high probability of a long protracted war in Ukraine, what is going to happen in terms of our relationships with some of these countries, uh, the West relationship, particularly with China, that China seems to be sort of straddling a fence there. How long is that sustainable? And if it doesn't sustain, where is China likely to go in this question? Sarah, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, no one quite knows what's going to happen, right? We're in, you know, we're, we're recording this on, you know, March 3rd, and no one's quite sure what's going to happen here. Um, I do think this is 
you know, maybe zooming out even further than you mean to, Dirk, but I do think that people for a long time in the United States have been concerned about a move to back to like what we'd call like a multipolar world. So like a moment in which you have multiple sort of places in the world that have quite a bit of power and there's sort of no clear, you know, sort of international community that is coming together and working on these issues. Um, and so maybe, right, we're moving to a place in which you have more sort of just general contention in the world, right, that we don't all agree on sort of what the quote unquote world order is. Um, and so I think that that maybe is a possible scenario given Russia's latest incursion. And I, I think part of this is because like it has a seat on the UN Security Council, right? It has a lot of power in world affairs. This isn't, um, you know, like, because I think we're talking about quote unquote great powers, like in just to use a political science term, right? Because we're talking about those kinds of countries, I think that that has the potential to change the, the way that the world sort of functions generally. Matt, what are your thoughts on where we go internationally? How does it change our relationships with other countries? Does NATO retain the kind of unity that it has? Are there other strategies that the West will be looking at in terms of its relationship, not just with China and Russia, but maybe even the Arab world, other powerful players internationally that can come to bear, not just on what's happening in Russia, but on the world economy right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and a tough one. I mean, um, we I don't really know kind of precisely what happened in the meeting between uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin at the beginning of the Olympics. But, you know, there have been, you know, reports at least about some things they talked about and with regard to the invasion and the timing of it and kind of different aspects of it. So depending really on kind of what the nature of that relationship is, um, uh, if it's kind of like the Soviet-China relationship in the early 1950s, or if it's maybe more like the era of the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s, it's kind of hard to know. But you know, the nature of that potential alliance of autocracies is kind of something that certainly would kind of bring about that more multipolar, you know, system that you know, you know hasn't at least been thought of to exist for you know a little while now um with regard to you know the nato countries i i mean it seems as if you know after kind of the trump administration and kind of everything that's happened over the last kind of few years and kind of uh talk of its lack of purpose and value and and that really conversation predates the trump administration but kind of it really kind of you know came you know kind of unglued a little bit during that period, uh, that there seems to be a, a, you know, a, a fair degree of, of unity that we don't always kind of see kind of between the United States and, uh, and Western Europe. So we could see that uh, kind of alliance certainly uh, be strengthened. With all that being said, I am not at all kind of, I, I would hope that we don't have a situation where we have alliance of autocracies in the Western Europe. I'd like to think that in the 2020s, kind of the world remains kind of more fluid, no matter kind of what the various uh, political alignments are and that we don't resort to like warring military blocks and like uh, dead zones because of sanctions and travel restrictions. So, um, but nonetheless, there does seem to be kind of a strengthening of the West. With regard to 
the Middle East, it's an interesting question. I mean, in a, in a region where kind of sovereignty uh, matters, you know, people are beginning to think again, kind of about the kind of war in Syria and the war in the Ukraine and kind of how they're, um, you know, kind of connected to kind of the larger, you know, kind of Russian foreign policy. And of course, people are thinking back to the US invasion of Iraq in 2003, which was the last time that I remember sitting around for months, wondering whether or not we'd see a great power go to war. And then you watch it on television and get confused about who's the liberator, you know, this, this kind of these, this conversation that it happened in 2003 too. So with regard to the Middle East, it's a, you know, it's a bit more complicated, but it certainly would reinforce this notion of like this importance of national sovereignty that, you know, Sarah has been talking about um, so far. So on all three kind of spheres, you have different possibilities. Well, Matt, I really have to commend you on taking a very multi-pronged question and answering each point so brilliantly and masterfully. And I want to thank you both for your wonderful analysis of this situation. And I look forward to having you back here for this discussion. We're out of time, but I have really appreciated the chance to come together and look at this situation. And I have a feeling we're going to have many reasons to come back and discuss it further. Sarah Fisher is a professor of political science at Emory Henry College. Matt Shannon is a professor of history at Emory Henry College. We've been talking about the war in Ukraine, and you have been listening to Together to Get There, the show dedicated to economic and community development in Southwest Virginia. I am your host, George Moore, and you have been listening to WEHC 90.7, the voice of Southwest Virginia. Thank you for listening.